But let's let's look at this passage together, and uh, it, it is a great passage of scripture. So let's try to pay close attention to what the apostle is writing here. Second Thessalonians two. I'm going to be reading verses one through twelve. Hear the word of the true and living God. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion, that is the apostasy, comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because... They refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that they may all be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower thereof falls away. But the word of our God shall stand forever. Would you be so kind as to pray with and for me with respect to the ministry of the word? Let us pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We would praise and thank you once again for this your holy and infallible word. I pray, O oh God, that you would be pleased in this hour to send forth your spirit upon preacher and people alike. Enable us, Father, to understand what is being said to us in this passage and help us, Father, to embrace it to the good of our never-dying souls. We plead these mercies through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now, as you may have understood, it's no understatement on my part to say that I come to this particular passage with fear and trembling. Indeed, 
there are a number of Reformed commentators who insist that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is surely one of the most difficult, if not the most difficult passage to exegete or to explain in all of the New Testament. What are we to make of this day of the Lord? What are we to make of this man of lawlessness? It would be nothing short of an overstatement on my part to point out that this passage has become the playground for some of the most nonsensical theories regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. I grew up myself in an ecclesiastical setting where many of these theories were perpetrated on the professing people of God. I recall quite vividly uh, the words of my systematic theology professor at RTS, Dr. John R. DeWitt. On one occasion, he made the observation that when one has an automotive uh, problem, one goes to the most reliable mechanic one can find. Uh, he says, when one is faced with a medical problem, he or she looks to, in search of the most reputable uh, physician that he or she can find. But when it comes to the doctrine of the end times, the doctrine of eschatology, it seems as though any old quack will do. And though I come to this passage with fear and trembling, those emotions, I think, are mitigated by the fact that the Apostles Paul, and keep this in mind, his overall primary purpose in this passage is not to predict the future contrary to the claims of certain so-called prophecy experts who approach this passage treating it as though it were a blueprint for spelling out what is yet to take place. But he comes to pastor the Thessalonian church by ministering comfort and warning to them. Paul gives his readers as well as us this cure for the eschatological madness. Now if you were to make a judgment based upon the books that have been published as well as the prognosticators of prophecy and the various left-behind movies that are circulating, you could imagine that the notion of a secret rapture and a pre-tribulation second coming of Christ were all clearly taught throughout all of Holy Scripture. However, in reality, not only is there no clear support for such a doctrine in Holy Scripture, but the most straightforward and clear passage on the subject actually contradicts those particular popular theories. And as we come this evening to our treatment of this, the second chapter of 2 Thessalonians, you can be the judge of whether my handling of the passage is correct. Now, I want to explain this passage verse by verse, exposition, and uh, exegete it, and seek to set before you the clear teaching on the subject of our Lord's second coming. It is divided, I think, in some three sections of thought, which we'll examine in that order. 
The three divisions are these. First of all, the event in question. The event in question. Then secondly, the great deception. The great deception. And last of all, the apostolic correction or the apostolic teaching. First of all then, what is the event in question? Paul makes himself very clear in this passage, verse 1. Now concerning the coming or the parousia. That's the Greek word, and I'm using it for a purpose. It's really the parousia of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. Now, it is essential that as we look at the event in question which he cites, there's a matter of which it is a matter which is already addressed to the Thessalonian believers in his first epistle. And I'm referring, of course, to that familiar passage which we find beginning with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 4 and following, all the way into chapter 5. It was, his same, it was his epistle to the same church. Now, it's important for us to understand that Paul is addressing the very same events which he addressed in that first epistle. Let me just mention a number of things that confirm the identity of the topics and events addressed here with the topics and events addressed there. Paul uses the same precise word for Christ's coming that he uses in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 15. It's the Greek word parousia. It simply means arrival or appearance. That's the word translated for his coming, his arrival, his appearance. Verse 15 of 1 Thessalonians 4 uses this word. For we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive and are left until the coming, the parousia of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. The coming of the Lord is the parousia of the Lord. And in addition to that, Paul connects the same event with a parousia. That is, he connects it with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He speaks both here in 2 Thessalonians 2 and there of the gathering of God's people to him at Christ's parousia, at his coming. And then the gathering and the coming are inseparably joined, you'll notice. The gathering occurs at the coming. And I think you can see that. And this is the very same point that Paul also makes in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. The gathering is also connected with the coming there. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And then there's the gathering and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So Paul connects the same event with a parousia as he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 
Moreover, notice that Paul also identifies these two events closely by the grammatical construction that he uses in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. I apologize for this, but it's necessary in order to address those false views. He speaks of the coming and gathering. Notice he does not speak of the coming and the gathering, but he speaks of the coming and gathering. And the fact that he does not repeat the article for the gathering, and my apologies again for alluding to the original, but the fact that he does not repeat the article implies that the two things, the coming and gathering, are closely connected and inseparably related in his mind. And this close connection of these two things are closely linked together given what he has already written in his first epistle to this same church. And as we continue to work through the passage, this fact that the coming and gathering are inseparably related will become very important. Now then, when Paul speaks of the day of the Lord as we see it in verse 2, he's making reference to the event of which he speaks in verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. The day of the Lord is the coming and gathering. Any natural reading of the passage will lead you to that conclusion. The day of the Lord in verse 2 clearly is the same event as the coming and gathering in verse 1. Interestingly, Though Paul transitions from the coming and gathering to the day of the Lord here, in precise, he does it in precisely the same way that he does in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and chapter 5. Let's look at that passage very quickly together because you may not see my point unless you take the time to, look, to read it through. Now, we've read 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15 already, where Paul said, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from the heaven with a cry of command and with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage or comfort one another with these words. Maybe it's not necessary, but I want to remind you again that the chapter divisions in our Bible are not inspired. And so these words continue to speak of the coming of Christ from the preceding verses. Verse 1 of chapter 5, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now it's clear here as well that the day of the Lord is the same thing as the coming and gathering of which Paul is speaking in 2 Thessalonians 2. 
the contextual flow to the end of 1 Thessalonians 4 and to 1 Thessalonians 5 makes that clear, as does the flow in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then there's the fivefold use of the word Lord, that short phrase, the Lord, with regard to the coming of the Lord. But notice as well that there is the use of the definite article, the, in the phrase, the times and the seasons. Now concerning, Paul says, the times and the seasons. What times and seasons? What is Paul talking about? Well, Greek students understand that this is an article of previous reference. And, and that may sound confusing to you to hear it for the first time. But it really, it's something that we most commonly do as individuals all the time. Uh, the the means that he's talking about something to which he has already been referring. So when he writes the times and the seasons in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1, what is he talking about? He's talking about the times and the seasons of the coming of the Lord plainly and clearly. Furthermore, you'll notice that he speaks of the day of the Lord as coming like a thief in the night. Now, where do you find that language, like a thief in the night, elsewhere in the New Testament? Well, you find it in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 43. You find it in Luke chapter 12, verse 39. You also find it in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10. And in all three of those verses as well, that terminology is used in reference to the second coming of our Lord. The day of the Lord is the coming and the gathering. So what does this mean and why is it so important? Well, it's important because the prevailing view of eschatology today called dispensationalism insists that the day of the Lord is something different than the coming of the Lord. And that's why I'm making such a point of this. It's important for us to see that the two of these things are one and the same thing. The fact that the day of the Lord does not come unless certain things happen first means that certain things must happen before the coming and gathering of which we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 1. Well, why does Paul see the need to address this event in question once again? As we would ask, why does he keep beating this dead horse? Well, that question leads me really to the second point. The warning against the great deception. The warning against the great deception. Look at verses 2 and 3. Paul says, Not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. Now, in order to understand what Paul is doing here, you must understand that the faith of the church in Thessalonica, though genuine and real, was nonetheless in a state of immaturity. We might even say a state of infancy. 
Now, although it's likely that Paul's ministry in Thessalonica was longer than the three Sabbath days that Luke explicitly recounts for us in Acts chapter 17 and verse 2, notwithstanding that, a number of facts make it clear to us that his ministry there was abruptly cut short and that he was forced to leave that city long before they were well established as a congregation. In Acts chapter 17 and verse 10, Luke makes reference to the hasty nighttime departure which was imposed upon Paul due to the persecution of the Jews. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And because his ministry there was cut short, Paul experienced some considerable anxiety for the believers in Thessalonica. He makes reference to this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and following. He writes, Therefore, when we could, know, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And because of that, he sent Timothy there to establish and to exhort them in the faith. And then Paul felt the necessity, and this is the precise language in 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13, of telling the Thessalonian church that they must not grieve as others who have no hope. Well, how can a Christian ever grieve as others who have no hope? How could that be? Well, again, I think it's because their faith in Paul's opinion was still being formed and was somewhat immature. So then, even though he had already written them with clear teaching in 1 Thessalonians, their faith was being threatened and challenged and in danger of being undermined with false teaching. And Paul's uncertain He's uncertain of the precise source of this false teaching. He makes reference, you'll notice, to a number of possibilities. He was uncertain if it came by a spirit, a spoken word, or a letter, as if from us. And so he suggests possibly a spirit. I think that might refer to a spoken prophecy of some sort, or a spoken word, or alluding to a rumor of verbal instruction. From the apostle, the term letter probably refers to a forged letter as if it were sent from Paul. But the point being, whatever the source was, what they had received was false. And it did not reflect the view of the apostle Paul. And now you can begin to see what Paul regarded in his concern for them. Here's this infant church the faith of which was already widespread and renowned. We learned that from 1 Thessalonians 1, but which he had not been able fully to instruct. And now here they are being subjected to the incursion and onslaught of false rumors about his teaching. But what was the false teaching that this infant church needed to be warned against at Thessalonica? Well, Paul tells us explicitly what it was. It was this rumor that the day of the Lord had come. 
And what could such a teaching have meant? Well, consider a few thoughts. The day of the Lord, as we've seen, refers clearly to the parousia and the gathering, the coming and gathering of the people of Christ to him at that event. Now, as I've stressed already, this is perfectly clear. Indeed, it's what the context demands were to believe concerning the day of the Lord. And Paul informs us as he identifies us what troubled his, re his readers. The rumor consisted of this, that the day of the Lord has literally become or has set in. The verb there, it's not simply a past tense. It's a perfect, perfect tense, meaning that it has come and now is. Or it could be translated that the day of the Lord has begun and is now present. Or it could be that the day of the Lord stands present. Now you can understand the nature of why the Thessalonians are troubled. And in reality, there are a number of difficult problems with such a rumor. First problem, Paul can scarcely mean to suggest, and it seems very unlikely, that the false teachers were saying that the second coming, resurrection, and, quote, rapture were already happening. Surely no Christian would have believed that, not even the immature believers in Thessalonica. That falsehood would have been too overt to be supported with any credulity whatsoever. Paul must admit that the false teachers were saying that these things were impending or near, or imminent, which leads us to a second problem. Paul himself, on different occasions, had taught that the coming of the Lord was near, and in this sense, imminent. Now there's a sense in which the coming of the Lord was and is imminent. But here Paul is saying that it is not imminent. So how are we to reconcile that reality? Paul, is it imminent or not? Is the day of the Lord near or is it not? How are we to put those two things together? And I think Paul must mean, contrary to the false teachers, that the day of the Lord was not imminent in such a way as to be in the immediate future. My point being that I think we must distinguish in our minds between the day of the Lord being imminent and the day of the Lord being immediately imminent. The day of the Lord was not imminent in such a way as to warrant Christians giving up their day jobs. And we have reason to believe, based upon 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15, that some of the Thessalonians were actually doing that very thing. Why were they being idle and not working? It seems to me that the connection to chapter 2 is simply too immediate to ignore. Namely, that some of them believed that the second coming of Christ was immediately imminent. They were waiting for the day of the Lord, which they thought could be any day now. 
that there was nothing to be in, to intervene, that there was no prophesied event that needed to precede it between the present day and the day of the Lord. And so it seems that some of them thought that the day of the Lord was immediately imminent, and that's why they were ordering their lives the way they were and becoming idle. Now then, that brings us to the teaching of the apostle regarding the event in question. His teaching, the correction of the apostle's teaching that he gives to the Thessalonians. And there are a number of elements that the apostle offers in order to refute the false teaching of the immediate imminence of Christ's return. He's going to speak of that which must take place first, of what is presently preventing it, and what will happen then. What must take place first, what is presently preventing it, and what will happen then. So what must take place first? The Apostle Paul informs us in this passage, contrary to, to the prognosticators of prophecy, he tells us explicitly that there are some things that must happen before Christ returns. He does not say contrary to modern day prognosticators of prophecy that no prophesied event transpires or intervenes between us and the return of Christ. He tells us there are at least two things that must take place first. And these two events are what the Puritan Thomas Manton described as the two antecedents or forerunners. He tells us that the day of the Lord will not come until, first of all, the apostasy, the rebellion. Verse 3, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Things. Here the apostle reminds them of what he had already addressed to them in his first epistle. Verse 5, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? He states explicitly that certain events were appointed and predicted to precede the day of the Lord. And th there are two such events and both of them are closely related. The first is this rebellion, the apostasy. Our Greek lexicons describe this word as a defiance of authority, as an abandonment of that authority, a rebellion that consists in a breach of faith. It is a defection from the truth. In all likelihood, this word refers to a religious apostasy, but may also demote, de, denote rebellion against the true and living God because of a changing loyalty from him. It's nothing short of high treason against the Lord Jesus Christ. It is not, as the prognosticators of prophecy, some of them are prone to teach, it is not a veiled 
reference to the notion of a secret rapture of the church. You say, I just read an article by a student at a certain university who argues that the apostasy here refers to the rapture of the church. I'm telling you, that is ludicrous. Some of the most ludicrous, the notion that apostasy is some vague reference to a secret rapture is simply put the imposition of a certain theological construct that's not warranted by the text. In other words, you have to take some preconceived idea that you've come up with in your head and then you can't find a way to make it fit because it's an apostasy. So you say, oh, the apostasy must really mean something else. We must, it must mean a departure. Ha-ha, it's the departure of the saints. So that's the secret rapture of the church. You may laugh and smile, but that is actually what certain people are teaching. Now, although apostasy has transpired throughout all of redemptive history, we've seen it in what is called the so-called deconstruction of the faith of many well-known professing Christians in our day. And though apostasy, rebellion takes place all the time, this apostasy from the true faith and true God will be so widespread when it comes that it will be clearly seen and recognized by true Christians. I think it's going to be global in nature. But the second closely related event will be a revelation of the lawless one, verses 3 and 8. This, I think, is a reference to that figure whom we commonly identify as the Antichrist in popular prophecy. Yes, I think the language here most naturally leads us to believe that he is an individual person and not some malicious system or institution. To be sure, the mystery of lawlessness, verse 7, may be such a, mo a movement, but it presents an individual who leads, promotes, and advocates apostasy from God and our most holy faith. He is apparently at the forefront of the great apostasy leading the charge. And I think that the Reformed commentator Hendrickson is right when he states he is not an abstract power or a collective concept. He is definitely an eschatological person. Moreover, Paul proceeds to tell us that he claims for himself divine honors. He claims to be God. Now, I want to be cautious here, but I think it's prob probable that the language of him taking a seat in the temple of God is not to be understood by some crass literalism, nor does it refer to the church, as some suggest, but that it means that he claims the worship offered to any god men worship in any temple they worship him in. Now I want to direct your attention to the most important thing that Paul presupposes in these verses about what must happen first. Paul presupposes, does he not, that this rebellion, this apostasy, 
and the revelation of the man of lawlessness, these two things are distinct, obvious events. He assumes that they will be recognized when they occur. Furthermore, he assumes that the Thessalonians know that they have not yet taken place because when they do happen, they will see them. And Paul's point is that until these events happen, they must not think that Christ's coming and our gathering to Him are immediately imminent. And Paul's clear implication is that when they do happen, the coming of Christ will then be in the immediate future. That brings us to the second point of Paul's corrective, his teaching regarding this event. What is presently preventing this event? Verses 6 and 7 read as follows. And you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. Now I hasten to say that though the Thessalonians knew what is restraining him, no commentator since then has. The rest of us don't know. At least we don't know with the same certainty that Paul says the Thessalonians knew. So most Christian commentators sit down and they try to figure out what the Thessalonians knew ever since Paul wrote these words. There have been many views set forth regarding the nature and the identity of the restrainer. Now, my own personal view, just to be forthcoming, it's not important. You don't have to believe what I believe here. It's not that important. But my view is, is that the restraint here is angelic power, and the restrainer is a mighty angel. I cannot, for the sake of time, delve too deeply into that, but if you go and read chapter 10 of the prophecy of Daniel and chapter 20 of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ, you will see that angels are used of God to restrain demonic power. And it seems to me that fallen spirits such as Satan, who is behind the mystery of lawlessness, would be restrained by an unfallen spirit or an unfallen angel. But beyond that view of mine, the most important thing for us to realize, you and I, is that there is a restrainer. And that restraint upon the mystery of lawlessness is throughout this age active. This restraint continues to restrain up until the very end of this age. And please notice there are three consecutive events set before us in the passage. There is the time of restraining. Secondly, there's the removal of the restraint with the coming of apostasy, the man of lawlessness, the time of delusion. And then, after a brief time, there's the destruction of the man of lawlessness and his followers. These three things are clearly in our passage. And that's the order, the time of restraining, the removal of the restraint, and after a brief time, the destruction of the man of lawlessness. Now, this same series of events, which I have here underscored, notice, takes place in the 20th chapter of the book of the Revelation 
of Jesus Christ. There is the restraining of Satan with his being cast into the pit. There is the brief time of trouble when he is released. And then there is the destruction of Satan by fire from heaven. It is the same sequence of events in Revelation chapter 20 that you have here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I find that to be very significant. Now then, that brings me to the third part of the apostles' teaching. We're going to go through this very quickly. What will happen then? Verses 8 to 12 describes what happens at the end of what I call the age of this present gospel millennium when the restrainer is removed and then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Dear people, these are frightening words. During those terrifying days of the last age, three things will happen. The man of lawlessness will be revealed. I believe this to be a reference to the personal Antichrist, the one identified in verse 3. Second, the world will be subjected to a great deception by Satan. False miracles, deceptive signs and wonders will be offered to support or to authenticate the claims of the Antichrist. Satan here is the unwilling agent in God's hand to judge a world that has rejected the truth by causing them to believe a lie. They believe a lie because in the first place, they did not receive the love of the truth. If you sit here tonight and you're rejecting the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're setting yourself up to believe a lie according to to this passage. That, my friends, is the teaching in it. And it ought to scare the socks off of anyone in their right mind. You say, oh, pastor, you're just trying to scare us. My friend, the apostle Paul, he doesn't need any help from me in this passage. He does it all on his own quite sufficiently. And then the third thing we see in verses 8 through 12, and I hurry on to finish. I know I'm a bit over. Following the great apostasy is that the Lord will return in glory during the lifetime of the Antichrist who will be revealed. Again, the word for his return here, it's never used for his first coming. It's the word parousia. It's always used as a general rule in reference to a second coming, the very word used in verse 1 as well in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 15. Seemingly, the apparent triumph of the Antichrist will be only for a brief time. And then the supernatural judgment of the Lord will fall on him 
and those under his deception to their everlasting destruction. There are a number of applications, but as I seek to bring this to a close, I give you just one. First of all, as I've intimated already, we must distinguish you and I between a true and false doctrine of eminence according to this passage. A true and false doctrine of eminence. Paul's warning in this passage that the day of the Lord is not immediately imminent, that two things must happen before is a plain and comforting corrective of the eschatological madness of our day. It is a repudiation of the false doctrine of the imminent return of Christ in our day. And this false doctrine of imminence states that no prophesied event remains before Christ's, quote, pre-tribulation return and that he must may come at any moment. The notion that Christ may come at any moment is simply put unbiblical. It is taught nowhere in the Word of God. Now I know that many of us have been taught that that's one of the most basic teachings of Christianity. I was brought up in a church that taught that very thing. But it simply is not true. Paul could not express himself any clearer that the apostasy and the revelation of the man of lawlessness must happen first. They must. Now some of you know well enough to know that the notion of a secret rapture and a pre-tribulation coming of Christ doesn't make sense. It never made sense to me even when I was being taught this. Now this false doctrine is based on false deductions from the commands of the Bible to be preferred prepared for and alert to Christ's coming. And I would say in response to that, of course we're to stay alert. But such watchfulness does not imply that Christ's coming may be at any moment. Here's a common scenario. You go to bed at night and you know that the next morning you have an early flight that you need to catch in order to make it to another city where you have business. But during the night, rest and sleep flee from you for fear of the possibility that you might oversleep and miss your flight. In like fashion, the commands of the Bible to stay awake and watchful do not mean that Christ could come at any moment. It means when he comes, he will come unexpectedly. You must always be prepared. What they mean is if we fall asleep, you might not be ready and you'll miss it. And so we have to stay awake. Now the delicate thing here, of course, as I've been suggesting, is that there is a biblical doctrine of the imminence of Christ's coming. In several places, Paul intimates, does he not, that Christ's coming is near. He says so in the New Testament in many places. It teaches that Christ's coming is near and is drawing near. It's drawing nearer. 
Nonetheless, something can be near and yet not be at any moment. We read in the Gospels over and over to be watchful for the return of Christ. Jesus said, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The only way to be ready for the second coming of Christ is to be found in union with Christ. And the only way to be found in union with Christ is to bow before him in repentance and faith. May the day of the Lord find us, you and I, in union with he who is the Lord of that day. Let's pray.